And it is time to continue with our reading and commentaries from Bhagavad Gita, trying to explain especially the esoteric and yogic meanings of this fundamental text of Indian spirituality, as well as trying to give to you the interpretation from the standpoint of energy, chakras, the angle of tantric yoga, which you learn here. And we had stopped last time at the verse at number 50 from the chapter 2, where Krishna was defining yoga as skill in action. He tells to Arjuna, devote thyself, devote yourself to yoga. Yoga is skill in action. And we had commented the very, very broad meaning of this definition, which is one of the most frequently remembered definitions of yoga. What is yoga? Some people would say yoga is the arresting of the movements of the mind, like in Patanjali, like Patanjali says, some people will say yoga is skill in action. That's how Krishna defines it. Of course, this is not the definition of Krishna, does not intend to define it, Krishna says, among others, yoga is skill in action. And then he continues by saying, the wise, their intellect truly united with the self, having renounced the fruits born of their actions and being liberated from the bonds of birth, arrive at a state devoid of suffering. Here Krishna suddenly sets forth the ideal. He says those who have reached the state of wisdom, possessing knowledge, reaching this knowledge of the self, of the higher self, abandoning the fruits of their actions, which is the very definition of karma yoga, which means acting as if always they do karma yoga, and bring, bring, being freed from the fetters of birth, being liberated from the bonds of birth. This is a very subtle statement because which are the fetters of birth? Which are the bonds of birth? Well, a simple rule of philosophy says whatever is born has to die. Whatever has a beginning must have an end. When you are born, you are born with certain limitations. For example, the DNA by your parents the gender under which your body is, male or female, the astrological sign under which you are born, and, of course, not last, not least of them, the samskaras, the residual traces from all the previous incarnations until this present one, which structure your subconscious mind in a certain way, so that now we are what we appear to be, we have reached at this level. Our existence illustrates what we are. And Krishna says, those who are connected with their self, who have spiritual knowledge, therefore, those who give up the fruits of their actions, and therefore those who act like karma yogis, those who are liberated from the bonds of birth, Therefore, those who did yoga until a level where their karma has been consumed, all these samskaras, 
They go to the place which is beyond all evil. They arrive at a state devoid of suffering. This is a statement in which basically Krishna sets the goal. He simply says it's possible for the human beings to go into a state which is devoid of suffering. It is possible for the human beings to go to a place which is beyond all evil. Buddha would call that place Nirvana. Jesus would call that place the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And of course, in the Indian tradition, this would be moksha or mukti, the liberation, reaching a state of liberation. So basically, after in enjoining, after advising Arjuna, go into action, O Arjuna, because yoga is skill in action, he starts giving a model. He starts telling him, look how it is. Those who are wise, those who are spiritual, those who act like karma yoga, those who have destroyed the samskaras and the residual traces, they go to a place where there is no suffering, which a place which is beyond all evil. Of course, that place is not a place in itself. It's not a geographical place like a land of immortality. It is a metaphorical expression for the spiritual realization, for the spiritual emancipation. So, these were the conditions for spiritual realization. Wisdom, knowledge, knowledge of the self, like spiritual knowledge, self-knowledge, karma yoga action, and eradication of the residual traces from the subconscious mind, and then it's done. And he continues by saying, when your intellect crosses the mire of delusion, then you will gain indifference to what has been heard and what is yet to be heard. Like Arjuna is tormented by the voice of the world. He says, people are going to say this. He is disturbed by the opinion of other people. He is disturbed by the traditions. He says, look what the Vedas say. If we destroy the family, we destroy the Dharma. If we destroy the Dharma, we destroy the rights which govern the family. And all that logical deduction which he had done a long time ago. And therefore, he is disturbed by what he has heard the spiritual tradition, this is a double entendre word, the spiritual tradition is called Shruti, what has been revealed or what has been heard. The Shastras, the holy texts of India, they are called what has been heard. Well, of course, not what has been heard by everybody. What has been heard by the Rishis in states of superconsciousness, it is what has been heard like the Prophet Muhammad heard the Archangel Gabriel coming and dictating to him the Quran. The Quran is a Shastra. It is something which has been heard. Therefore, exactly in the same way, all the Indian tradition is what has been heard. Of course, here cynical, skeptical, unbelieving people can come to the objection that what has been heard can be heard by a schizophrenic, alienated, disturbed mind. And then there are many people in mental hospitals who hear things. And the fact that they can write down the mumbo-jumbo which they hear doesn't make those things sacred. 
Of course, the Shastras are not just the raving of some crazy people who heard things. They are verified by the fact that they correspond to the tradition. They correspond to the gurus of those people who heard those things. And they satisfy the spiritual common sense. And perhaps best of all, they are verified by time. If a crazy person in a mental place writes like the guy from Quills, like Marquis de Sade, writes some crazy stuff which is entirely pathological and disturbed, people will not listen to it 300 years later or 3,000 years later. It will never withstand the test of time if it is the product of insanity. But if it is the product of wisdom, it will be empowered and reconfirmed. And that is why this is called the Shastras. So the statement of Krishna is a double entendre. He says, when your intellect crosses the mire of delusion, then you will attain indifference to, as to what has been heard and what has yet to be heard. So that can simply mean the world. The world is full of things which have been heard and which shall be heard. And if somebody says, oh my God, shall I do this? I already heard that people said this and that. And I'm wondering what will they say three years from now? And Krishna says, you have to reach indifference, says the translation here, which is not the best. I'll get back to that. Krishna says, you have to reach indifference to that, like when you know what is right, whatever has been heard and whatever shall be heard, you should do it because it's right, that is the Dharma. As you remember, Krishna is strictly on the side of idealism. This in a certain way is very scary for people because this is one of the definitions of fanaticism. Fanatic people are the people who don't care about what everybody else says or will say. They simply know the truth, or at least they think that they know the truth, and they are ready to go forward for it. They never hold back. Remember, this is a slippery path indeed, and that's why more, con more con uh, conditions have to be fulfilled here. Because in a certain way, here Krishna touches only one side of the problem and we'll see immediately how he continues. And that's why he says you will reach indifference to what has been heard and what is yet to be heard. Remember again and again, that's one of the definitions, that's one of the positions of fanaticism. Everybody, at the same time, it's also Jesus. Many people must have told to Jesus, oh Jesus, chill out cool down, be a bit quiet, shut your big mouth, stop antagonizing those people, don't do this, don't do that. And although everybody was telling to Jesus to do or not to do something, Jesus did his own thing. He simply believed absolutely 100% in who he was and what he had to do, and he just did it. That was all there was to it. And that is why, of course, you can say that when Jesus is fanatical, like, you know, it's like never listening to anybody, just do your thing. There is a very, very narrow margin between spiritual genius and madness or fanaticism. Fanaticism is indeed 
uh, spiritual distortion of the worst kind. So, again, he says you have to attain indifference as to what has been heard and what has yet to be heard. Like, do the right thing. If you know it is the right thing, do the right thing. And at the same time, what has been heard and what yet has to be heard, it also means the Shastras. Because the Shastras are the ones which have been heard. So Krishna basically tells him when your intellect crosses beyond delusion, you will gain indifference to the Shastras and to all these things, and you are just going to do what is right, what your intellect, which is now detached and unencumbered with uh, illusion, with maya, is telling you. It's a very important statement, and here there are a few shades to it. It says when your intellect crosses beyond the mire of delusion, like everybody's intellect is temporarily caught into illusion or delusion. Even the most intelligent people, there are so many intelligent people whose mind is demonic, diabolic, cynical, heartless, blind, and therefore even very, very intelligent people sometimes can be in the middle of a great nothingness and of a great emptiness of soul. Even Jesus says the same thing in which I cannot quote ad literam, but he says, wherever the wisdom and the knowledge is great, there is also lots of vanity and lots of nothingness, lots of vain effort. Therefore, it's not enough to have just intelligence. The intelligence has to go beyond the mire of illusion. The regular intelligence of the human being is not a wise intelligence. It is not an intelligence which is guided by Atman, which is guided by the self. Like, I know that I have a supreme self, and this supreme self guides my actions, enlightens my mind, and my mind always thinks in terms of this. Different spiritual cultures, they found different ways to enlighten their mind. For example, one of the methods used by Christian mystics, which was not directly like Atman, but it indirectly it does exactly the same thing, was constantly to think of death. Every day, all the time, think that your death is coming. The clock is ticking and your death is coming. Do you want to do this whenever you have a foolish project in your life? Think, my death is coming. Is this convergent with that? I am okay with that. If my death would be coming five days from now, would I still be doing this? Why the heck am I doing this? Why am I starting this project? Why am I not meditating on my crown chakra? Why am I not trying to enlighten myself? And of course, people who are selfish, they say, Oh, come on, Swami. We heard that so many times. But you cannot live your life like this. Who would ever do anything like, Sure, maybe people would not take PhDs. Maybe people would not build Eiffel Towers or pyramids anymore if they would think like this. That's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says, why toil? Why weave? Look at the birds in the sky and this. It's much more important to live with God than to build Eiffel Towers. The Eiffel Tower is just catering to human vanity. It is just puffing up 
people's pride that look we did something we erected some pyramids and some Eiffel Towers but at the same time we are baboons at the level of spirituality we kill each other we abuse each other we are living in mud from a spiritual standpoint most of the people do and that is why here we lose some priorities people immediately will say yeah you can't preach that but that's exactly what spiritual people did preach even great philosophers of antiquity Musonius Rufus great Roman philosopher he said we can't live properly every day of our life if we live it as if it were the last day how many people can live like this that's why Saint Basil the Great says there is no greater cure to the foolishness of the mind than the constant thought of death think that your death is coming and then you'll see all the things will become unimportant 99% of what you did before becomes unimportant because people try to think like they are immortal and to forget death and to do all sorts of foolish things to fill up their lives with secondary things because they do not have the knees strong enough they don't have the stomach strong enough to take concentrated spiritual food to take concentrated spiritual practice and that's why all the time they dilly-dally they prefer to do second grade things third-rate things no like diluted things because the spiritual things are too strong some people have the power to sit and pray and some people go and do gardening they say oh I know it's very important to pray but somebody has to water the plants but if you look at it with the angle of Jesus praying is a hundred times more important than watering plants and yet people do it as a surrogate because you cannot pray and you feel guilty if you don't do anything and therefore you at least go and water the plants but yet people know my mind is still under the mire of illusion I am choosing some things which are second-rate because I'm not able I don't have legs strong enough to hold me in an intense spirituality and therefore I'm falling on the second line of defense and I'm trying to do at least some middle-of-the-way type of spirituality if I cannot push it at the level where Milarepa pushed it or where Saint Mark of Ethiopia pushed it then everybody has to find their own place in this spiritual economy and therefore the first thing is that the intellect has to go beyond this delusion remember an unenlightened intellect is very smart in finding excuses and finding all sorts of things but when the intellect knows of the existence of the spirit then the intellect will always put the spirit first the spirit is the most important life is subordinated to the spirit we don't live forever on this planet therefore our future is not on this planet we don't come from this world and we don't stay in this world therefore this world is like crossing a bridge is an in between two other states the previous one and the subsequent one of which we don't know anything and that is why then an enlightened intellect will immediately put things into perspective like what is life what are you doing if you do this what are you doing if you fulfill this or that and when you put it in the perspective of spirit when you put it in the perspective of eternity and immortality when you put it in the perspective of death even then 
automatically life starts getting a different meaning. So that's why Krishna says, with an intellect which is not blinded by false excuses, no more false excuses, look into the eyes of the spiritual truth, then you shall attain to indifference as to what has been heard and what has to be heard. I would like to object to the word indifference, which is generally used here, because actually what you know already, that what Krishna actually says here is detachment. Sometimes detachment looks like indifference, but detachment is not always indifference. Detachment can be like some people don't see the truth. No, one man was burying his father or mother, or son, or brother, whatever it was. And Jesus comes there and says, sees that this person is a talented spiritual person and says, come follow me. And the man says, first I need to bury my mom and then I will follow you. And Jesus says, let the dead go with the dead and we, the living, be with the living. Like he even tells to the guy, you don't even need to bury your mom. It's just a social convention. There are enough relatives who will bury your mom. Of course, if you go without, like in the middle of the funeral of your mom, you start following Jesus. Everybody will say you are demented. Everybody will boo you. When you turn back to your village, if you ever do it, they are going to throw stones at you. Everybody is going to think that you are the most miserable, idiotic person, insensitive person that has ever been. And actually, that's not the truth. Jesus told you, come follow me, and you had to choose between two things. And Jesus says, what do you gain besides people's respect if you, and just the fulfilling of a social convention if you just stay and bury your mom? But of course, for most people, this is intolerable. Krishna is in the class of those spiritual masters like Jesus and others like him, which are completely intolerant of petty things. Like they don't make any compromise, these people. These people simply tell things as they are. And they simply say logically now, you know. Sure, your emotions can disturb you. And he speaks later about the emotions. But he says when your intellect is, you know what the self is. So we continue. That's why I say Krishna is a little bit rough and scary. And men, many people would be afraid to follow a Jesus to follow a Krishna, to give your life for a spiritual ideal, to fail to bury your own mother so that you go follow your spiritual master and things like this, because these people simply are very decisive in their things. They simply say what is right is right. The spiritual thing is there. It is the most valuable and important thing. Sometimes you can make compromises. Sometimes it's absolutely useless to make compromises. This sort of policy makes such people sound very dangerous, very incisive. So he says, when you will have no more illusion in your mind, then you will be detached both from the Shastras the Vedas, whatever has been said in the Vedas, and you will be detached as to what people said or what people will say. You will be able to go beyond that. This is a continuation because now Krishna started describing a condition of spiritual realization. And the last shloka before the question of Arjuna comes is, 
when your intellect perplexed by what you have heard or it can be said perplexed by the tradition perplexed by the religious tradition no what is for arjuna the vedic texts would be for a christian the bible so that's what has been heard it's a holy text it's a revealed thing so he's krishna says when your intellect perplexed by what you have heard like you are in a state of oh and yet your intellect shall stand immovably unshaken steady in the self in the i am in the self the supreme self not the ego of course then you shall attain yoga by this he means then you shall attain self-realization that's very important again he, he insists on this he says your mind must be unshakable you can see weakness of mind when people are disturbed by what they hear by what other people say and then they lose it all the time they are unable to drive their boat straight somebody says hey you are doing too much of this oh yes yeah, sorry then somebody quotes from a text it has been said thou shalt oh yes yeah, sorry and the boat is driving like this instead of the boat driving straight to the target this is the expression of an unenlightened mind where all the time one is shaken one is disturbed by all the things look at jesus many people say lots of bad things to jesus many people said lots of bad things to buddha many people said lots of bad things to krishna and buddha and jesus and krishna and others of their caliber they were undisturbed completely they just did their thing and that was it i'm not saying that there were idiotic people who were non-responsive and they would not take some cues i'm sure they were perfectly intelligent adaptable human beings who at the level of the common sense they could take some cues like if you step on a sharp stone and it cuts in your foot in your soul then of course next time you won't step on that stone it would be idiotic to step two times on the same sharp edge stone and cut your foot again and again that both buddha and krishna and jesus of course they would take a cue but it's one thing to take a cue and it's another thing to listen to other people's minds when those minds are not enlightened because that's the problem people say oh but there are a lot of people on this planet and all of them have intelligence it's true but 99.9 percent of them have a perverted intelligence their intelligence is under maya their intelligence is not enlightened by the supreme self and therefore their intelligence from this standpoint at least it's useless their intelligence can be good at building machine guns their intelligence can be excellent at building aircraft and eiffel towers their intelligence is completely useless when it comes to the spiritual action this is the paradox and you have to understand this difference it's very very important and then arjuna is provoked krishna in the last three shlokas described to him a spiritual state he said people of wise intellect who have who are aware of their self and who have burned their samskaras they go to this moksha mukti nirvana kingdom of god and they transcend everything and they are not disturbed they are like indifferent and they are fine 
And Arjuna therefore wants to know more. And he asks a very intelligent question. He says, Arjuna said, says the text, what are the signs of a man whose intellect is steady, who is absorbed in the self? Oh, Keshava. Keshava is another name of Krishna. It's about the hair, the mane of hair, which apparently Krishna had. How does it means with a mane of hair? How does the man of steady intellect and uh, the man of steady intellect, he means the man who has focused on Atman, a man whose mind is not a disturbed mind, a monkey mind, the man who is enlightened. But he calls it the man of steady intellect or mind. How does the man of steady intellect speak? How does he sit? How does he walk? He's very intelligent because these are all of them NLP, neuro-linguistic programming questions. Like, tell me how the man of wisdom is and I shall behave like him and I shall get what he gets. In neuro-linguistic programming, that's called modeling. You model somebody, you get their gift. Because this is one of the generic applications of the law of resonance. So, Arjuna is very practical. It's, he's, very, uh, he's a practical man. He's a pragmatic person. He says, what is the description of he who has reached his wisdom and is merged in this superconscious state? How does this man of steady wisdom speak, sit, walk? Like he's interested, of course, and he would like to get in the shoes of that person because who wouldn't? And then Krishna upgrades this description. He pushes it one notch up. And therefore, the blessed Lord, that is Krishna, said, When a man completely casts off, O Arjuna, all the desires of the mind, which are deep in the mind, and when he is satisfied in the self, by the self, through the self, alone, then he is said to be one of steady wisdom. Like steady wisdom means here enlightenment, a mind which has reached the guidance of the self. And let's listen again. First, the first paragraph, the first description. When a man completely casts off all the desires that have gone deep into the mind, when he is satisfied in the self, through the self, alone, then he is said to be of steady intellect. It's very difficult to understand this. Only those who have reached a little bit of those states of consciousness can fully understand what Krishna says here. Because Krishna refers to a paradoxical condition. I remember once having read a discourse of Osho Rajneesh in which he was making a brilliant point exactly of this issue. He was making a brilliant point because he said psychologically people all the time evaluate themselves by what they do, not by what they are. The most important thing is what you are. That's why the question is, who am I? People are, the most important question is not what do I do. The most important question is, who am I? If I reach to the conclusion of Shankaracharya, 
who says, I am consciousness and bliss without end. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. Then what does it matter what you do? Like Shankaracharya, Adi Shankaracharya, died at the age of 32, even younger than Jesus, and not crucified. He just left his body. He became enlightened at the age of 16, and he lived enlightened for 16 years. In those 16 years, he left a legacy which India is still carrying today after a thousand years and more. And then he simply left his body. At the age of 32, he couldn't have been that ill and that frail unless he was plagued by some genetical disease or something which we don't know, something really severe. And therefore, Shankaracharya, if he, if he is able to say, I am Shiva, I am consciousness and bliss without end, then what does he expect from himself? Like, can Shankaracharya say, oh, today I ate some tamasic food. Very bad of me. Like, I am no longer consciousness and bliss without end. I am no longer Shiva because I ate some shitty food. Oh, yesterday I burped in public or I farted in public. I am not uh, Shiva anymore. I'm not consciousness and bliss without end anymore. For Shankaracharya, it's obvious that from the moment when you say such a sentence, either you are dead crazy and you should be put in a straitjacket into a padded room into an institution, or from that day on, it never matters what you do. Because what you do, what you don't do, Oh, today I went to the Shakti Hall and I kept a speech about uh, Bhagavad Gita. But because I had an itch in my right big toe, I couldn't hold a very inspired speech. And therefore, I'm a bad teacher. I'm not really the Swami that I used to be. What has that got to do with anything? If I'm teaching good or not so good if I behave elegantly or I don't behave elegantly, if I did my duty or I didn't do my duty, what has that got to do with anything? I am a child of God. I am God incarnated into a human body. As such, I am perfect at that level. As such, as such I love myself unconditionally and forever. And therefore, what can I blame myself? Therefore, when I reach at this level of consciousness, I cannot stop loving myself because I did or I didn't do something. But most people value themselves because of what they do. They say, I did three hours of yoga. Therefore, I'm good. God can love me today. God can love you anyway, whatever you do. Or don't do. The problem is, do you love yourself? Do you realize that in this body in which you live today, a miracle is happening? Do you realize that the molecules out of which your body is made are nothing else but inanimate matter? And here there are 60, 70, 80, 100 kilos of matter, which is breathing, thinking, and which is conscious, 
This miracle happens right now. You are that. You are the divine consciousness at this moment. This miracle, and it doesn't depend if you did well your Kriyas this morning or not. If you did your Kriyas well or not this morning, will not change the fact that you are a wonderful child of God. It will not change the fact that you are actually God in creation. It can't change that thing. People keep valuing themselves through actions, through what they do. And therefore, Krishna says, When you completely cast off the desires of the mind, that is the unenlightened mind, the mind which is not spiritual, and is satisfied in the self, through the self. Like, I am happy because I am. I am happy because I am he that I am. I am happy because I exist. It is the same thing you can see not only with people alone. Somebody stays in a room and the saint stays in the room. The fathers of the desert lock themselves into a blank room, not even an icon on the wall to distract your attention, like a whitewashed room in which either you go crazy and you lose it because you have to spend years and years in that small room, and the boredom becomes something insane, or you start being happy with yourself for the sake of the self. Like I'm sitting there in the room, and somebody who is of a rajasic spirit will say, so what have you done today? Nothing. I haven't done anything today. So then how can you be so happy with yourself? You just scratched your ass all day long and you are still happy? Yes. I'm extremely happy while not doing anything because I don't have to do something to be happy. It's not doing which makes me happy. It's being which makes me happy. I am consciousness and bliss without end. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. There is nothing else. I don't need anything else for being happy. Therefore, unfortunately, the mind which is still of a rajasic orientation defines itself through the actions. Did you do something good? Oh, you did uh, five hours of meditation. Good for you. Now you can smile. You can look in the mirror. You can be pleased with yourself because you did. But what about if you are pleased with yourself for yourself? Some people say, isn't that an egoism? No. Because the selfish person still defines themselves through the actions. Even if you would think that a selfish person is very happy about themselves in an unjustified, absurd way, like people do the greatest shitty things, and then they say, oh, I still feel very good about this. That's not the way the selfish people are all the way. The selfish person still needs to do things. The selfish person needs to praise themselves, to sing songs of praise to themselves. The selfish person needs appreciation and recognition from the others. The selfish person wants money, comfort, this, that. So the selfish person is still very action-oriented. The selfish person is not just 
happy with themselves in a philosophical way. The selfish person is actually a very rajasic, active person who does things for themselves to satisfy their own senses, to satisfy their own sense of ego. Here Krishna speaks about a much higher accomplishment. He simply says, the way it is translated, he says, is satisfied in the self, in oneself. I am satisfied in myself, by the self, through the self. Like what makes me so satisfied when I am alone? Myself. The mere fact that I am consciousness and bliss without end, I am Shiva, I am Shiva. The mere fact that I exist. Many, many people cannot understand this. Because if you do not have the intelligence to make this happen in your life, it shows that your mind has not yet been purified, at least not spiritually purified, <coughs> not ultimately purified by the criteria of Krishna. It is true that Krishna is a demanding teacher. He raises the stake very high. He says, I'm not going to talk about a little bit of purification, that now you are not cursing anymore, and now you are not blaspheming anymore. And That is kindergarten. He says, from a spiritual standpoint, the person who is there, you can see that they are not satisfied by actions, but they are satisfied by being. When Bhairavi Brahmani discovered Ramakrishna, she realized immediately that this young boy couldn't have had all those states of samadhi and ecstasy without too much yoga because she discovered him and he was already an ecstatic man. And he couldn't have had that unless he was an avatar, unless he was born with a great spiritual realization. And then she con convenes a great gathering of sages, of mystics, of scholars, so that they should all look at her disciple Ramakrishna and proclaim if this young man is an avatar or not. And they all gather, and Ramakrishna is brought in front of them. And Ramakrishna sits there in the middle of a circle of 30 wise people, men and women, who are very knowledgeable and spiritually experienced, and who are about to decide if he shall be called an avatar or not. And Ramakrishna, meanwhile, was playing like a stupid child. He had some silly objects, and he was sitting like this, and all those people were talking great words about what he was supposed to be. And Ramakrishna was rolling some things like a retarded child. He was playing with some things like this. And he paid attention to nobody. Ramakrishna was not happy because people said that he was an avatar or a great spirit. He was happy through himself. He was demonstrating through his very existence, his very presence and being was a demonstration that he was the right thing. Ramakrishna was there happy in the self, by the self. He was not in the self, happy by other things. He was in his self because he did a good thing. He was happy in the self, by the self, through the self. He himself was enough to himself. This is very, very important because as long as you are pushed extra, you need to prove something. You need to prove yourself all the time. 
You need to prove that you are good. You need to prove that you love God. You need to prove that you are spiritual. You need to prove to yourself that you are worthy and you deserve thinking well about yourself and being loved. That's not the path. Of course, in the beginning we gain merit and we do tapas and we do lots of things. That's part of the mentality of the beginning. But there comes a purified mentality where one is happy in the self, by the self. Like doing nothing. Even by doing nothing, one is extremely satisfied. Just being alone in a room, doing absolutely trivial things, like great masters of Zen, who are just measuring rice, chopping wood, sweeping the alleys, you know, like very simple, menial things, jobs which were tried, an existence which was so simple, because you don't need anything else to make you happy. You are happy in the self, by the self, through the self. No, there is no need to do. The same thing happens in relationships. There are people who are happy with themselves and they say, I'm happy just because I am. I'm happy because I exist. I cherish myself because I am this consciousness. And very few of you have reached to this degree of love. And then when you go into a relationship, it's the same thing. You have a brother or a sister or a friend or even better, a lover. And you go to your lover and the correct attitude is, I am happy because you exist. That's the only thing which makes me happy. The mere fact that you exist makes me happy. It's not the fact that you gave me a piece of chocolate. It's not the fact that you smiled at me. It's not the fact that you spooned me. It's not the fact that you did this or you didn't do that. That's an inferior level. If you do this to me, I shall be happy. But the true love brought to the perfect level is you make me happy because you exist, not because of what you do. There are lovers who simply say, I am grateful because you exist. So somebody says, what if he or she exists and then three years later you are not together? Makes no difference. They still exist. I am happy because you exist. This simply puts no pressure on you. It puts no demand. Stay with me. Don't stay with me. Do this to me. Don't do this to me. I'm happy because you exist. That's the difference of defining yourself through existence or defining yourself through actions. Krishna, therefore, says very clearly when he describes the first characteristic, says, when a man completely takes away the desires which are coming from the unenlightened mind, when he is satisfied in the self, through the self, alone, then it is, he said, to be of steady intellect, which here means to be of enlightened intellect. It's a very important subject for all of you to meditate. Do you have moments when you are happy with yourself just because you are yourself? And you could just sit and do nothing, watch the sunset, 
play with a little thing and not get bored like the fathers of the desert spent 10 years alone in a room and not get bored because you are happy with yourself, by yourself, and that without being ill, without being insane, without being a pathological case, on the contrary, being a common sense-centered spiritual personality. And he continues, He whose mind is unshaken in the midst of sorrows and adversity, who among pleasures is free from longing, from whom attachment, fear, and anger have departed. He is said to be a sage of a steady intellect. How many things to meditate, how many things. He whose mind is unshaken in the midst of sorrows and adversity. How is your mind when you encounter sorrows and adversity? It is almost impossible in a life in which everything is yin and yang, yin and yang, that you don't find a day which is a little bit more bitter and you find yourself in the middle of some sorrow and adversity. But Krishna says, the sages, the wise ones, are not shaken in the middle of sorrow and adversity. Like, sure, there is some sad day today, there is some adversity, it doesn't mean I like it, because then I would be a masochist if I would like trouble. I don't like pain and suffering, but I'm not shaken. Like it doesn't reach deeper than three millimeters. It's very much on the surface. Sure, on the surface this is uncomfortable. Does this make me lose my great happiness? No, it doesn't really. I'm not shaken who among pleasures is free from longing. Krishna is tantric very often, as I told you. And therefore, he says, in the middle of pleasures, free from longing. You see, Krishna does not say that one should have no pleasures. He says, even if you have pleasures, you become not addicted to them. That is the tantric way in dealing with action, with possessions, with sexuality, and with all the other things, in the middle of pleasures, not being afflicted by them, not being plagued by the desires. Like, can you stop now? Try a pleasure and see if you can stop. No, you are making love. Can you just stop any moment and be completely unperturbed and unshaken? Just because you had, let's say, the telephone was ringing or something, and you stop. Is it okay? Can you just stop? Or are you hungry? Are you dependent? Are you hankering for it? If you are hankering, then there is no freedom in that point. And from whom attachment, fear, and anger have departed. These are typical poisons of the mind in the yoga tradition. Attachment, fear, anger. They reflect the different impurities at different chakras. And Krishna says, if those have departed, if, those, if the person is free from attachment, free and anger, then he is called the sage of steady wisdom. 
These are meditations, no? Like these are conditions. That's what Krishna says, at least five conditions. To be unshaken in the midst of sorrow and adversity. To in pleasure, to be at the same time free from longing for that pleasure, like the addiction, the attachment. And finally, to be free from attachment, fear and anger. Again, Never take it in a perfectionistic black and white thing. If you are going to shake your head and say, ah, the stakes are already so high, who can go? Who is free from fear and anger and attachment and so on, you know? Like, take anybody and put a gun, a cock a gun at their head and see if they are lacking fear or something. Almost everybody would react. Even great yogis have manifested fear. So, it's, this is not black and white. There are many shades of gray, but it's one thing to be 99% overwhelmed by attachment, overwhelmed by fear, overwhelmed by greed and anger and others, and it's another thing to have these things more or less under control, that generally in your life they are diminished. They are diminished to a level where they don't control your life or they don't control your life that much. And the verification is in yama and niyama and in all those harmonious moral and ethical things. So these conditions, this is because Arjuna asked, how does this person sit? How does this person speak? How does this person walk? This is how this person speaks and sits and walks. This person in the middle of pleasure is free from longing. This person is not disturbed mentally in adversity and sorrow. This person is eliminating fear and attachment and all those. And he says, he who is everywhere without attachment on meeting with anything good or bad, who neither exalts nor recoils, who neither rejoices nor hates, his wisdom is established. That again rises the stakes very far, very high. Because how many people did you meet who could say, he who is, has no undue fondness towards anything, who is at, everywhere without attachment, who neither exalts nor recoils, who is uh, on meeting neither rejoices nor hates, and such person has an established wisdom. Again here, you have to think in two levels. First of all, not everything is black and white. You cannot say that this person rejoices and ex exalts and re recoils. This person uh, is uh, fond or not fond, attached or not attached. And suddenly, this person becomes the opposite. One day, they stand on their head and they do laya yoga. And one day, they have become perfect. These things happen in a gradual process which goes over years and years and sometimes over lifetimes and lifetimes. And that is why, remember that even if you gain a certain degree, like people say, I don't know if I can reach perfection. Good. Even if you cannot reach perfection. But it says, he who is everywhere without attachment, either on meeting with anything good or bad, very few people, I told, I often tell to people, I don't believe you see this kind of people too much in Kali Yuga, in this world at this time. 
What would it mean to be without attachment or rejection in front of anything good or bad? No, like somebody is hammering your finger and breaking your bones. Is it, are you supposed to stay indifferent to that? Oh, put your finger on the table, take a hammer, blow it. Demonstrate that you are completely unattached and indifferent to something good or bad. Where have you seen such people? I am sure that even Krishna would have recoiled at somebody breaking his finger with a hammer. That's not the point. The point is that it cannot be perfect like black and white. It has to be to a certain extent. It's like when you build critical mass. Once the critical mass is reached, then the rest is taken care of. You don't need to take care of the details. It's like a predominance. It's like on a seesaw. To have the right arm of the seesaw up, you have to put enough weight on the left. But you don't need to put an infinite weight on the left. You just need to put more than 50%. If on this one you have 49% and on this one you have 51%, it goes up. And from the standpoint of up or down, it is the same if you have 51% or if you have 81% here. Still, the seesaw remains in the same position. Right part up, left part down. Therefore, there comes a critical mass in your development when if you reach a certain level of detachment, when you reach a certain establishment of the wisdom, neither rejoices nor hating, and then the intellect is established, the wisdom is established. This, is, this was one statement, one way of looking into this very important way of defining. And another way of defining it is, wait a second, if you tell this sentence like, okay, he who has everywhere without attachment on meeting with anything good or bad, who neither rejoices nor hates, okay, so we should never rejoice, we should never hate. The interpretation of the Vedantin and of the non-tantric teachings about this is, you have to eliminate the rejoicing and the hate. Like, I don't want to see you laugh, I don't want to see you cry. Any extreme emotion is bipolar. You need to reach the golden middle. In Buddhism, in Vedanta, in so many other ascetic, even the fathers of the desert in ultra-ascetic Christianity, they practice this kind of disciplines to reach a dispassion, to reach detachment, to reach indifference to everything. People praise you, people boo you. You have a good day, you have a bad day. You, you never either get exultant nor recoiling and going into something bad. That's one way. But remember that always in dealing with things, there are two ways. And the other way is the tantric way, which doesn't say you should give up the action. In this case, the emotions. It says you should be able to control them from their center. Exactly as in terms of sexuality, the tantric yoga doesn't say you have to give up sexuality to become detached from it and transcend it. You can transcend it by doing it in a certain way. And then you also transcend it because you balance yourself and then you go to a point where it's not necessary anymore. And that's why... 
There are two ways, remember, this interpretation, this shloka, many people will take it primitively. He who is everywhere without attachment, not meeting with anything good or bad, who neither rejoices nor hates, his wisdom is established. Right. So no more extreme, no more hating, no more loving, no more exaltation, no more recoiling, no rejoicing, no hating. That's it. Many people would not even stay in spirituality because they will say that sounds as very dead. And indeed, emotionally, mentally, some people followed this path of the void, of the emptiness. Like you create emptiness in your psychic apparatus. There is no rejoicing, there is no sadness, there is no depression, there is no exaltation, there is nothing too good, nothing too bad. You just stay in the middle and you don't smile, you don't cry. You just practice an impassive state of mind. But remember that the same thing can be transcended through it like it is okay to have emotions if you can control them. It is okay to have sexuality if you can control the way the sexuality happens. It is okay to have emotions if you can play with them. Like, can you create in yourself a state of admiration? exaltation like there comes the moment when we have to sing for Krishna there comes the moment where we have to worship Shiva on Mahashivaratri or something can I create in myself this state some people would say oh you know Swami on the Mahashivaratri I was very tired and I couldn't really get in the mood it means you still don't know how to deal with your emotions but in the moment when you can deal with them, have control, in that moment it's a different thing. And then there is the tantric path. You can take the tantric path in which you don't need to kill the emotions, the two extremes. You need to practice them in a very knowledgeable and controlled way. In general, and, and some people would believe that it is yoga like karma yoga but actually Krishna in this chapter number two very much looks into the mind he looked at Sankhya which is a sort of philosophy of Raja yoga a philosophy of the mind a philosophy of Jnana yoga and now when he tells about the intellect that is enlightened by the spirit an enlightened mind he describes more and more psychological parameters which actually are a lesson in Raja Yoga. This part of Bhagavad Gita speaks very much about the mind, the control of the mind, the spiritualization of the mind, the purification of the mind, the sublimation of the contents of the mind. And he continues in the shloka number 58 by a classical image in Indian spirituality saying, And when such a man withdraws his senses from their objects as a tortoise draws in its limbs from all sides, his intellect is then steady. The wisdom is established. But this is the very definition of Pratyahara. Here already, Krishna 
enters into the Antaranga Yoga, into the internal part of yoga, the fifth level of Patanjali's yoga, Pratyahara. Basically, Patanjali, uh, I'm sorry, Krishna here says, such a wise person, by withdrawing the senses from their objects, is becoming established. That's valid in concentration of the mind, it's valid in meditation, it's valid in samadhi and spiritual contemplation, because in all those, you cannot afford to be disturbed by the senses. You, one has to be truly interiorized. So, here, he starts quite technically already, by simply the, def the very definition of pratyahara. And he continues, the objects of senses turn away from him who does not feed upon them, but the taste for them persists. On seeing the Supreme, even this taste ceases. So here there are two steps. Again, he talks a little bit in the dry way, although then he comes back and you will see he makes room for the full understanding. But basically, as a principle, he says, one turns away the attention from the senses, does pratyahara, like a turtle withdraws its limbs, and then one's mind is firm and one's wisdom is established. And then he starts explaining why. He says, the objects of the senses turn away from the one who is refraining, leaving, however, the longing behind. But he, this longing also turns away on seeing the Supreme. So when interiorizing, there still remains the subtle part. Like, for example, I do not eat a cake, I do not touch sugar with my tongue, but at the same time I can dream about eating a cake, I can have phantasms, I can have desires for eating sugar, and they also disturb my soul, it's not yet over. And then he says the only way to take out those is, he says here, on seeing the Supreme. The state of Samadhi, the state of spiritual realization will also destroy the inner elements of this. Then, of course, the problem, the solution is not only in actually refraining. The problem is in reaching the Supreme. Reaching the Supreme automatically solves all the levels of this problem. But he has described the step-by-step -step process, however, in the end, giving us the higher view. And I'm not stopping here with too many explanations, because actually this continues. And here, in the number 60, in the verse at number 60, he makes one of the typical statements of Raja Yoga. He says, the turbulent senses, O Arjuna, he actually says, O son of Kunti, the turbulent senses, O Arjuna, forcibly carry away the mind, even of a discerning man who endeavors to control them. The senses are powerful. Expose yourself to the senses, and the senses... He says, the turbulent senses carry away the mind even of a discerning man who endeavors to control them. Therefore, here again there are two paths. 
Either you can develop your awareness to stay undisturbed in the middle of the turbulent senses, that's the tantric path, or you simply avoid the senses altogether, this being more like the Vedantic type of path. So he gives a meditation. This is one of the simplified forms of meditation already taught by Krishna in chapter number 2. He says, having brought them all, all the senses, all the turbulent senses, having brought them all under control. How do you bring your senses under control? Pratyahara, right? I want to do meditation. When I want to do meditation, I don't want to be disturbed by what I see, so I close my eyes. I don't want to be disturbed by what I hear, so I plug my ears or do it in a very quiet place. I don't want to be disturbed, be disturbed by my sense of taste. I don't want to be disturbed by my sense of smell. I don't want to be disturbed by my sense of touch. Therefore, this is the simple pratyahara. It's not so difficult to bring them all under control, especially for a period of time. Almost all of you who do already a good meditation, we can say that you are bringing your senses under control for 30 minutes. For 30 minutes you manage, you close your eyes, and for 30 minutes you are not disturbed visually, auditorily, tactile, olfactorily, or in taste ways, and you just do your meditation. So he says, having brought them all under control, like Pratyahara, let him sit united, unified, like here is a first element of it. Let him sit steadfast, united, determined. So Krishna says, when you do meditation, do it. Now sit down and do a good meditation. So let him, he should sit steadfast, looking to me as supreme intent on me, looking forward to me. What's this? This is aspiration. This is Ishvara Pranidhana. So Krishna says when you meditate, you should sit with, eliminate the sense disturbance, be steadfast, be firm, united, be like focused, and be intent on me. Here for the first time Krishna uses the word me, Instead of God, suddenly, abruptly, Krishna does not say, let him sit united looking to me as supreme. He does not say, let him sit united looking to God as supreme, looking to God the Father, looking to Brahman as supreme. No, he says, looking to me as supreme, which brings the double entendre again. Krishna declares himself to be God. Therefore, Krishna says, I am an avatara, which is considered true in the Hindu tradition. And two, he says, looking upon me as supreme, looking upon me, the I am, looking upon the inner self as supreme. This is more the Vedantic interpretation. He says, let him bring the senses under control like Pratyahara. Let him stay with determination, looking to me as supreme, which means meditating on Atman is Brahman. Meditating on I am that. Meditating on the supreme is in me. Me 
is the supreme. So he doesn't say me, Krishna. He says me as supreme. But me is also for me and every one of you can say me. And therefore when you, when you repeat this, you say looking on me as supreme. There's a very subtle twist of words here. Sanskrit allows this because this is at the same time praising Krishna as God. And he says people should meditate at me. Of course, in a Christian environment, you will say, why not meditate on Jesus, which is fine. Why not meditate on Shiva, if you love Kashmiri Shaivism. Any divine image which represents fully the divine consciousness. And at the same time, remember that it's you. It's not something external. Jesus says it very clearly. The kingdom of God is in every man's heart. And my first teacher in spirituality said, then, then I ask the question, is God present in his own kingdom or not? It's impossible that in the kingdom of God, there should be no God. God must be in the kingdom of God. And therefore, if the kingdom of God is in everyone's heart, and the God is in the kingdom of God, then it means by Socratic deduction that actually God is in every man's heart. And this is illustrated by Jivatman, by the supreme individual self, which represents the drop of infinite, the drop of divinity which we have. And that's why he says, having brought them all under control, let him sit with firmness, looking to me as supreme, for his intellect is established, whose senses are under control, subdued. So he comes back. He says the most important thing when you start meditation is that your senses should be under control. Realize, you sit, you have five senses. Are they under control? Take each and every one of them. Is one of them torturing you? You don't have them under control. Is it too cold? Is it too hot? Are you hungry? You yearn for something. You see too much, disturbs you. You hear noise, control them. Find a way to control them. And here is a meditation, which is, of course, a Shivopaya type of meditation, as Kashmiri Shaivism defines it. He says, there is nothing physical in this. He says, sit with all your senses under control, which means isolated in Pratyahara, shutting them off. In a f determined way, powerfully, like there is no weakness, there should be full vigilance, and looking to me as supreme, intent on me. That's all there is. This is, I am Shiva, this is, I am that. <clears throat> this is a direct meditation to God. And this is directly an illustration of that. That's Raja Yoga. Putting your mind into God. <clears throat> Remember, Ajna Chakra does not always go into Sahasrara. Ajna Chakra is Ajna Chakra and Sahasrara is Sahasrara. We need to have an Ajna Chakra which moves towards Sahasrara, which transcends. We need to have a Chakra number six which goes towards the Chakra number seven. In the Christian and as well Judaic and Islamic theology, the devil, Lucifer, has 
a star burning on his forehead. That's Ajna Chakra. So the devil has even Ajna Chakra powers, great powers, but he has no Sahasrara. That's why he does not realize, acknowledge the truth. Therefore, six without seven is not good. That's what makes the number six a symbol of the demonic. Six, 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 like in the Bible. Because it's not seven. It's great intelligence. All the great diabolically intelligent, sarcastical, cynical type of people with great ajna, but no sahasrara. There is intelligence, but there is no divinity. There is intelligence, but there is no wisdom. Ajna Chakra is not looking up. The third eye, instead of looking to God and saying, what do you order, my master? Your mind, instead of looking at your spirit and saying, what is thy bidding, my master? Because the spirit is the master of the house. The mind is looking anywhere else. The mind is the chaotic monkey. It is not spiritualized. Because of this, it's full of samskaras. It's full of desires. It's full of chaotic tendencies. While in Raja Yoga, from Ajna Chakra, you have to move to Sahasrara. Ajna is a bridge to Sahasrara. The mind is a bridge to the spirit. That's why constantly here Krishna speaks about Raja Yoga. He speaks about how to make the mind divine. How to divinize the mind. And he says, eliminate your senses. Do Pratyahara. Go full on and think of God. Like that last thing is essential. You can make meditation without thinking of God then your mind does not get enlightened. Your mind is looking just for various powers. This was the objection of Buddha himself. Buddha spent years in the forest being educated by some samans, some sort of primitive yogis, and those yogis were eating one grain of rice per day and doing all sorts of incredible austerities and they were focusing on the pole star and they were focusing on the belly button and they were doing all sorts of samyamas like in mentioned in the Yoga Sutra and their purpose was to get power. By acquiring samyama, they would get power. Until today, the Buddhist tradition deprecates the Hindu tradition and some of the yogic things because they never followed up the history of yoga and the evolution. They stayed with Buddha. Buddha, 25 centuries ago, encountered some yogis who were practicing their Ajna Chakra, but they were not reaching Nirvana. They were not practicing a mind towards Sahasrara, a mind with the self. They were practicing a mind for the sake of the mind. They said, if I can focus on this elephant, will I become powerful like the elephant? Because that's what the Yoga Sutra says. If you do Samyama on the elephant, you get the power of the elephant. That is Ajna Chakra. But there is no Sahasrara into that because there is no spirituality. That's just a collateral effect of the mind. And it appears in the multiple siddhis and ridis, which occasionally can be experienced or seen by people. That is an unenlightened mind. That mind does not destroy the samskaras. 
that mind does not bring the nirvana. And Buddha has deprecated them. I said, I've been with them, I've seen what they were doing and what they could do, and I was dissatisfied. That's why today, in the tradition of Buddhism, especially the Theravada Buddhism, the Hinayana Buddhism, this is called Samadhi. And many Buddhists say, we don't want to reach Samadhi. And everybody who practices yoga is revolted. Like, what do you mean you don't want to reach Samadhi? Because for them, the name Samadhi is not the equivalent of Nirvana. For us in yoga, Samadhi, and especially Nirvikalpa Samadhi, is one and the same thing with Nirvana. It's just another name. But in Buddhism, they gave a bad connotation to the name Samadhi, making it mean more like Samyama, identification. Like Samadhi means that you focus on an elephant, on the pole star, on the belly button, on something to get some powers. And when you focus on a black dot or whatever you focus on, your mind gets extremely absorbed and you go deep, deep, and you can reach clairvoyance or powers or something. And the idea is, and so what? You reached all those, but you didn't reach the great spirit. That is why Buddha rediscovered a great aspect in Raja Yoga, because Buddha discovered a way of focusing the mind, not for mundane purposes, not for cities, not for mental accomplishments, but he discovered the way of focusing the mind so that you find who you are. You find the answer to the great question. You find the reality. And thus, this is why Krishna defines the same. He says, bring the senses under control. Be determined, crouching tiger. And look to me as supreme. Like your meditation should not be on an elephant. Your meditation should not be on the pole star. Your meditation should not be on a black dot on the wall. Your meditation should be on me, Krishna, or the self as supreme. That's the meditation. I am that and all the corollary things. Remember what I say here does not mean that it's wrong to focus on a black dot. At some stages of yoga, especially in the beginning when you need to develop more willpower, more power of concentration, more discrimination and many other abilities which are very useful, it's perfectly okay to focus on a black dot. It's perfectly okay to focus on the belly button or on the pit of the throat or on the pole star. or But that's not the end of it. That's not the purpose. Those are just steps on the ladder of personal development. They are just stages of your personal development. That's not the end. They are just temporary instruments. So, here he defines very clearly a Raja Yoga spiritual meditation. Pratyahara, determination, crouching tiger, powerful inside, and looking to me as supreme, intent on me, Ishvara Pranidana. That's enough. And a little bit more, the last thing is his wonderful analysis. If you don't do that, the opposite of it. He says, pondering on the objects of the senses, the objects of the senses, such as a sweet cake. The sense is the taste, and the object of this sense is something very tasty, which you taste. 
pondering on objects of senses, meditating, thinking on the objects of senses, a man develops attachment for them. Remember, that's the law of nature. Krishna knows if you like something, you're going to get attached to it. Everybody does. So he says, thinking about the objects of senses, attachment for them develops. From attachment springs up desire. Of course, if you are attached, then you desire it. And desire gives rise to anger. Because if you want something and you can't have it, then you get enraged. You get rabid. You want it more and more. Frustrated desire gives rise to anger. So first you think of the objects. This determines attachment. Attachment generates desire. Desire generates anger. And then he continues in 63. From anger arises delusion because you want something so much that you got enraged and then you are ready to step over dead bodies because you want it, you want it, you want it, you want it and nothing matters. You start finding justifications, you start finding excuses, you don't feel what other people feel, you are ready to tread over the limits because you want it so much. So from anger rises delusion, from delusion there rises loss of memory like people don't remember what's good and what's not good anymore. You found yourself an excuse and then suddenly you lost everything which your religion taught you, everything which the same society taught you, everything which your parents or teachers taught you is suddenly forgotten. How many times happens? There is not a person in this room who didn't have at least once in, this, in their life this chain of things. Objects, attachment, desire, anger, from anger, delusion. Of course, you feel you are justified. You think you are okay. But still, you are deluded and everybody around you looks at you and says, there, starting that moment, you started going astray. We all could see that you are going wrong. And therefore, delusion. From delusion comes loss of memory, like you lost all the teachings. From loss of memory, there results the destruction of the discrimination. Like if you have no more memory of everything which you learned in a lifetime, the way you slowly formatted your brain, the teachings which you added painfully day after day to learn all the things, suddenly everything is gone. And then there is no more discrimination. How can you have discrimination when you have reached to such a level? And then the last level is from the destruction of discrimination, he perishes. He perishes. The person is destroyed. When once you lost the discrimination, even if it's for five minutes, those five minutes can take you to your extermination. And perishes can be a physical extermination, but what he means here more than that is a spiritual extermination. Like you lose yourself spiritually. As you would say in Christianity, you lose your soul. Your soul dies. So let's look at this again. When a man thinks of the objects, attachment to them arises. From attachment, desire is born. From desire rises anger. From anger comes delusion. From delusion there comes loss of memory. And from loss of memory there comes no discrimination. And from no discrimination, one perishes. 
says Krishna. One is wiped out. That is why the first thing which we need to regain. Now try to realize, how do we go back? We go back, first of all, starting with discrimination. The first thing which we need to get away from perishing, to get away from being spiritually dead, we need to have discrimination. And the discrimination says, I want this is good, this is not good, this is right, this is not right. Make me separate the real from the unreal. Make me separate the spiritual from the unspiritual and all those things. This is discrimination. Most people in this world live a life where they perished already. Biologically they can be alive, but their discrimination is down to zero. They have lowered their guard totally. Funnily enough, there are still people who are religious fundamentalists. Those people do have some discrimination still, simply because they blindly cling to some old teachings. Just because they fanatically and in a very old-fashioned way they cling to some old teachings, somehow they stay under the umbrella. Like they say, no, you can't do that. That is a sin. That shouldn't be done. And everybody else goes berserk and say, ah, you are so square-toed. You are so disturbing. You with your feeling of sin and no sin and right and no, everything goes. Everything is okay. Not according to Krishna. According to Krishna, there is discrimination and the discrimination takes us back because the discrimination is bringing us the memory of things and the memory brings us, starts eliminating the illusion and then with the elimination of illusion we start losing our anger and with the elimination of anger we start losing our desire and with the elimination of desire, we start losing our attachment. We just have to make the way back. That's the way the cookie crumbles, and the other way around is the way it builds up again. It's useful for you to meditate on these stages, to see through which stages did you pass in your life, because it's most probable that you passed through all of them, and there have been moments in your life where you, spiritually speaking, perished. You simply cancelled yourself. We will stop here because then he turns the tide and he now he described the way the cookie crumbles and then he says, but for the self-controlled man, it's not like that. Then he comes back to the spiritual teachings. He gave here a beautiful analysis of the way the attachment to the objects of senses leads eventually to the loss of discrimination and to perishing, to spiritual death. And it is up to you to meditate how you build these ones back, which is the way back. Of course, all the spirituality and yoga are pointing us back towards these things. As promised, I shall not go further than that tonight. We'll stop at an early stage. Let's just spend a couple of minutes in silence to let our subconscious mind absorb the beautiful understandings conveyed by Krishna, the abrupt, high-stake spirituality brought by Krishna.
And that will do. We'll stop here. Namaste to all of you. With this, we have finished our satsang for tonight.